Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. chapter 12. We'll look at verse 12. A few things uh, while we are transitioning. Uh, One bit of good news is uh, uh, the church's new website is up and running. If you know anything about that, that is good news. Ha! He who sits in the heavens laughs. We rejoice. Uh, At the end of the service, uh, the the tech guys are going to put that website up on the screen for you to see. Um, But then... um, in some things regarding the uh, the building project, I, I figured earlier this week I was going to need to uh, give a little update. And so even as of four days ago, it was going to be good news and bad news. Uh, because even as of four days ago, uh, what it looked like is uh, the cell of this current building had been delayed and it, it just wasn't for some reason had been stalled for some time. And without having the the money from selling this building, it was gonna put us over the maximum amount of uh, uh, debt that we had voted on as a church. So we were gonna have to look at that. Wasn't gonna be an emergency, but it was inconvenient. But here's what happened uh, since then. I've got good news, good news, and more good news since then. Uh, First bit of good news is uh, on Friday, uh, we got to do a walkthrough uh, of, of the new facilities. It is exciting, uh, looking wonderful. Uh, and they're telling us two weeks, two weeks, they'll hand us the keys and it will become our possession in two weeks. Uh, then we figure it's going to, we're planning for two weeks of a transition of moving things and setting up, uh, things like that. So a good guess, uh, plus or minus a week or so would be the, the first Sunday of August to be the first time worshiping uh, in the new facilities. So uh, we, we will make that abundantly clear and announce it a lot. So you won't just show up here and nobody will be here. We'll make it clear. Um, but then more good news is that since uh, even just uh, four days ago, um, we now have a closing date on the sale of this building. But even better news than, than, than that, uh, Bob's been running the numbers and, and looking at what would it look like if this happened, what would happen if, if this over here happened, that kind of thing. We've now come to a point, there has been such an influx of resources that even without selling this building, we are still just barely under that maximum amount of debt that we voted on as a church that we would have, which means that with the selling of the building, we're going to be hitting that goal of uh, knocking it way down so that we are not strapped with debt, which has been the, the goal of what we've been doing here, which means uh, one of a couple things has happened. Um, either one, this church body is giving a lot, uh, or two, the bank is accidentally putting money in our account that's not supposed to be there. We're pretty sure it's the first one, okay? Um, so what that means is that's it's just a great thing. It's something to rejoice in. Uh, you know, just throughout this whole process for, for several years as we've been doing this, Uh, When we keep coming to these difficult points, we collectively, we pray and we ask God for grace. He keeps answering. Uh, He keeps doing this. So we are thankful for those things. So lots of good news there. Let's give thanks to God. Uh, He is answering prayers. Well, let's look at Romans chapter 12. Um, We are working our way through this list of 13 exhortations. And uh, we come to verse 12 today. 
And the intention with this one is, this is a big enough win that I thought it would be helpful to just take the entire week and consider just this exhortation. So it's the first phrase there of verse 12. So that's, that's, that's all we're going to read. I'll just read that one phrase. Then we'll pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll, we'll, we'll think the entire time on just this truth. So verse 12, the first phrase there, rejoicing in hope. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, you've given us your word. We look to you and ask God that you will give us understanding. We believe every word in, in the scriptures is breathed out by you, that it is meant for our instruction. It's profitable to bring about what only you can. We are not able to change ourselves. We are not able to spiritually grow by our own efforts. It takes a power that is beyond us. But you promise that by the means you have given, worship, the work of your word, Lord, that you'll bring about transformation. So for us who are here and we have trusted in Christ, we're safe not because of anything good in us, but only because you are merciful to forgive for us, O oh God, we pray that you will use your word to transform, to make us holy, to grow us, to awaken, to quicken, to strengthen, to convict, to challenge, to encourage, to also to convict. Lord, but we also pray for any that are here and they have not yet understood the message of the gospel, not yet seen that we must have forgiveness of sins and that it only comes by turning from our, our rebellion and trusting in Christ, calling out to you. I ask, oh God, that you will give the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of salvation, and that you will draw souls to yourself, that you'll awaken souls to faith in this time. So please, please work, oh God, we pray. Build your church, build your kingdom by us studying your word. We pray for our little ones in the next room. We pray that as they learn your word, that they will come to believe. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you protect this service. Help me to be useful, to explain your truth. Help all of us as we worship by looking to you, O oh God. And we ask all these things through the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, in the past, I've told you a, a, a number of stories about Corey Tin Boom and her family. Uh, this was a Christian family who lived in Holland during World War II. They hid Jews uh, from the Nazis so that they would not be put to death, but they were eventually uh, arrested and put in a concentration camp. Uh, the last time that I told you stories about uh, Corey and her family, they thought they were going to be released from this concentration camp, but instead they were loaded onto a train, transported into the heart of Germany, uh, into a concentration camp that was even more awful than the one that they had just come from. And so I pick up there and I'm going to add to what I've previously told you. When Corey and her sister Betsy uh, found themselves, themselves in this new concentration camp and in the, in the, in the conditions so much worse, they, they found themselves in a barracks with Hundreds of women sharing a limited number of beds, a limited number of bedpans, and a room crawling with fleas. And seeing that people were being executed on a daily basis, Corey began to be overwhelmed. 
and, and a great despair began to grip her. But Betsy was beside her and, and, and Betsy said to Corey, you know, Corey always said that Betsy was the one who had the greater faith between them. And Betsy said, the, the, the answer to our heartache is from our scripture reading from this morning. And so she took out the secret Bible that they had smuggled in and opened up to what they had read that morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it reads, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so Betsy said to Corey, we have so much to give thanks for. Let's pray right now. And so Corey says she kind of reluctantly bowed her head. She wasn't in the mood, but Betsy began to pray. And the first thing that Betsy thanked God for was, Lord, thank you that we have this Bible. It was kind of an uncanny way that they had been able to bring a Bible in. Uh, that Betsy had managed to come across it in the previous concentration camp and in order to hide it from the guards because they would have been severely beaten, possibly executed if they would have been found with their Bible. She tied a string around it and hung it from her neck and let it drape on her back so that it wouldn't print through the clothing and so it wouldn't be seen. But when they came to the new concentration camp, Everyone was stripped naked and searched. And, but just before Corey and Betsy were about to be stripped in order to be searched, Betsy passed out. And they were able to drag her into the shower room and they had the presence of mind to take the Bible and hide it in the shower room. And then later they were able to get it. And they brought that Bible back into their barracks. And part of the, part of the account that is just so phenomenal is that within the camp, Corey and Betsy were able to teach the word of God, teach the gospel to hundreds of women every night whenever they would gather for worship. And so Betsy said, thank you, God, that we have the Bible. And next, Betsy said, and thank you, God, that we're together. And previously, they had been separated. Uh, when Corey was first arrested, she spent the first four months of her imprisonment in solitary confinement. But then later when they were brought to the new concentration camp, uh, Corey and Betsy managed to find each other and wiggle their way onto the same uh, train and then be put into the same barracks. And so as Betsy would say each of these things they were grateful for, Corey would repeat them. So Betsy said, thank you, God, that we have the Bible. And Corey repeated, yes, God, thank you for the Bible. And then Betsy would say, thank you, God, that we're together. And Corey would agree, yes, yes, thank you, God, that we're together. But, but next, Betsy lifted up a word of gratitude that Corey couldn't bring herself to repeat. Betsy prayed and said, and God, thank you for the fleas. And Corey, at that moment, couldn't bring herself to say that. See, Betsy was, was seeing the great reality here. Even the fleas had been ordained by God. He was in control of every detail. They could have been put in any one of the barracks, but God ordained that they went to that barracks and, and Betsy believed that somehow, some way, this had been ordained by God and the scripture says it is always for the people's good. But let me tell you what Corey found out later. Corey later found out that because their barracks was infested with fleas, this meant that the soldiers didn't go near to those barracks. And that means that the women of that barracks weren't raped. 
And it means that every single night, Corey and Betsy had an opportunity that the other barracks did not have. Because the soldiers wouldn't go near that room, Corey and Betsy were able to lead a time of worship every single night where they read from the scriptures and explained its meaning. Corey and Betsy would read it in Dutch and then it would be translated over here. Somebody would translate it into Czech. And then over here, someone would translate it into German. And they described that across the room of hundreds of women, the word of God would be translated into another language. And, and she described later that some of those times of worship were so powerful that they would tremble as they held the Bible. Corey even said the word of God became so precious to us because God's nearness was so evident that it seemed that the Bible was written but yesterday and they were amazed that the ink was still dry. God used evil men and awful circumstances, even the fleas, to provide a, an opportunity for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be built, for the kingdom of God to come, for the gospel to spread, for souls to be saved, and a great many did. And that would be a wonderful illustration to talk about God's sovereignty and these kinds of things, but here's, here's some of what I want to draw out of that. First, your understanding of God, His plan, His purposes, and His promises, like Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good, your understanding of those things has to have room for pain and suffering like that. It, it is a shallow and it's a misunderstanding of God's promises to think that because God promises that all things will work to good, that this means that, you know, you'll always have enough money to go out to eat on Friday nights or you'll always have enough money to pay your bills no matter how much you buy or you're always going to have the health, the exact health that you want. That, that's not what scripture says. But what scripture says is that even in pain, God is working it for good. God is still loving his people through it all because these earthly pains cannot compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the coming age. And next, I want you to consider this Christian. Only the gospel. Only the gospel gives a hope that is big enough and strong enough to give you the ability to thank God in those kinds of circumstances. Only the gospel gives a confidence, gives a joy, gives a hope that is big enough that in something like that, Betsy was able to thank God for the fleas, that they were able to rejoice you know, many of the covenanters, I've told you stories about them in the past 400 years ago in Scotland, many of them put to death. Many of the covenanters, as they stood on the platform ready to be disemboweled and slain for the name of Christ, spoke to the crowds, called them to believe and said, do not fear suffering for the truth of Christ. And they would even say, these last weeks have been amongst the sweetest of my life. God has been so near. Only the gospel is able to give a perspective like that, is able to give a hope like that. Secularism will never lead you to something like that. Only the gospel, the promises that we have in Christ, give us this.
And this is what we're talking about this morning. The exhortation of this passage that we're considering is to rejoice in hope. And this is big enough, I thought it would be helpful to just take the entire time of study and think on just this one, because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I'll tell you some of the parts of how we're going to study it here in just a bit, but let, let's, let's get started as we consider this phrase, this exhortation to rejoice in hope. Here in this verse of scripture, this is given to us as an, an exhortation. Remember, an exhortation is kind of like an appeal, an encouragement. It would be like if I say to you, I encourage you this week, go live and rejoice in hope, an exhortation. But there are other parts of scripture where the call to rejoice or commands like it are given as what I just said, a command. It's not just an encouragement. It's not just a feel free to do this if you like. We're told to do it. We're instructed to do it. Sometimes people find that surprising in and of itself. Remember, sometimes people fall to the misunderstanding of the idea, I can't help how I feel. If my circumstances are rotten, well, I can't possibly rejoice. The Bible exhorts us in some places and in other places commands us to, here's some there's probably between 50 and 100 places in the Bible that call us this. In the book of Philippians, we are told to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord. Shout for joy. Psalm 5, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 98, break forth into joyful song to the Lord. And over and over again throughout the Psalms, there is a, an invitation that is given to the ends of the earth. An invitation uh, to those who do not yet believe in the Lord, come and be glad in the Lord with us. Rejoice. Know the delight that comes in taking refuge in the Lord. So this is given to us in, in many ways, encouragements, exhortations, and even commands. Delight yourself in the Lord. But let's also make this clear that when we're told to rejoice, to be glad, to delight, etc., the Bible is not telling us something like, get yourself in a good mood. It's not just a call to a positive mental attitude, like make sure you're chipper every day, okay? And if we ask why, well, just because, okay? The Bible is, doesn't call for that. I'm not saying the Bible's against a positive mental attitude. I'm just saying that's not the command. Repeatedly, what is the command? Rejoice, always pay attention to these little phrases in the Bible. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Delight yourself in your God. It is sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Repeatedly, the Bible doesn't just say, make sure you get yourself in a good mood by your coffee and enough sleep kind of thing. No, what it calls us to is joy, a rejoicing, and then it tells us a reason. And it's not just a reason. It's the reason to end all reasons. It is the greatest hope that exist. It is, it is a reason that is rooted in a hope that is not merely something so trivial as what sometimes biblical passages are reduced to in a misunderstanding 
when, when people say things like, hey, it's okay. I'm sure it's all going to work out okay in a few days. You're never given that promise in the Bible. In fact, we're given the distinct warning, it might get a lot worse. Your head might be tied to a pole. You might be strung up for the name of Christ. And then the Bible says, but rejoice. It's rooted in something deeper. It's rooted in something that goes beyond God promising something as trivial as a billion dollars. What we are being given is something infinitely more valuable than this. Our hope, it is rooted in the great hope. Christian, God has prepared a kingdom for you. If you are in Christ, and the if that I say there is very important. If you are looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have trusted in Him by His life, His blood, His death, burial, resurrection, by that work, He has purchased you from the flames of hell. He has rescued you from the darkness. He has brought you out from under the wrath of God and He has given you a kingdom, an inheritance, the promises of eternal joy. You will live in the presence of your God, the God of glory, the God of joy. Because of this, we are told all fear and worry can be removed. We are coming to a kingdom where fear and worry will be removed. The curse will be lifted. The lion will lay down by the lamb. All the promises from the Bible, the hills will flow with new wine. It will be a place of singing and dancing because you are in the presence of your God. This is our hope. You are troubled now. It will only be a little while, one way or the other. Our hope is in the kingdom that has been prepared. And so when the Bible says to rejoice in hope and in the Lord, this is what it is referring to. We are given a hope that if we'll put in the work, that's a key phrase. If we will put in the work of fixing our hope, it causes our hearts to soar, our lips to sing, and to bless the name of God even if the worst of circumstances come about. Like Job said, Job who lost just about everything on earth, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. We are given a hope that enables us to this. We rejoice in the hope of our final redemption. So this is what the exhortation calls us to. But to think more about this, here's what I wanna do for the, for the rest of our time. I'm going to give two sections here. The, the first one being this. If we are called to rejoice in hope, then that means that there are some things that the Bible is telling us not to do. So for every positive command, like a thou shalt, 
that there are some negative commands, pro, negative prohibitions that come with that. A thou shalt not. Okay, so in the Ten Commandments, when we are told you shall not make any uh, graven images, uh, you, you, sh you shall have no other gods before me. Well, there are some positive commands. That means we are to worship Yahweh as our God. Okay, you shall not commit adultery. That means that there's a thou shalt. Okay, you shall be faithful. All right, so when the Bible gives us this exhortation to rejoice in hope, that means that there are some things that we are not to do. So let me, let me give you a list. Here are 10 attitudes, actions, passions, perspectives, dispositions, etc., that we're told not to hold in our hearts. This isn't exhaustive, and I wasn't trying to get 10, it's just 10 is what I came to. So these are sinful attitudes, actions, perspectives, dispositions, and passions. I'll spend about 10 minutes on these, and then we'll go to the positives, what we are called to. So first, number one, we are not to grumble in our hearts. Not to grumble in our hearts. Number two, we are not to complain with our lips. Not to complain with our lips. Number three, we are not to covet other people's property, other people's circumstances, other people's lives, other people's money. We are not to lust. And what lust is, it is an ungodly desire. There, there is such a thing as a good desire, but a lust is when a, a desire turns ungodly for some reason, either in excess or in some distortion. Lust is an unsatisfied discontentment. More on that later. Number four, we're not to let jealousy live in our hearts. And the difference between coveting and jealousy is, is, is this. Cove, coveting is this ungodly desiring, this ungodly lusting. Jealousy is when I'm angry about it. Jealousy is I, I see my neighbor's whatever, or just this thing that's out there, and I'm upset that I don't have it, and he has it, and that's not fair, because in my arrogant heart, I believe that I deserve it. So jealousy is I'm angry that someone else has something, or that I don't have something. When my heart thinks that something isn't fair, my heart believes that I'm being mistreated. My heart believes that I'm being oppressed, that I am a victim. And of course, as we have joked about in the past, this has become our new national pastime. Finding new ways of, of, of figuring out ways that I've been oppressed. Victimhood has become a kind of virtue. It's just the age-old sin of envy and jealousy. Number five, we are not to be discontent. To be content is to be in a state of peaceful satisfaction. But a lusting heart is one that is never content, never okay, never satisfied. I can never come to a place where it's, ah, because, because I'm always needing more in order to be happy. Uh, Discontentment is, is like a fire that's always looking for more to devour, like a leech that is never satisfied. That's right out of the book of Proverbs, by the way. It's an always unsatisfied heart. An always unsatisfied heart is a heart that is controlled by sinful fleshly desires. Uh, number six, I'll say these quickly. I'll just lump several together. We are not to be grumpy, irritable, or impatient. Number seven. We're not to be entitled, entitled. And I know that there's similarity between this and some of the others we've mentioned, but there is a bit of distinction there. Uh, one quick thing I'll tell you. 
In the year 2000, Americans were, and this is taking taxes and inflation into consideration, Americans were 450% wealthier than during the Great Depression. And so that stopped everybody from complaining, right? Okay, 450% wealthier and, and another statistic that is sad, by the way, Protestants, and I know that's a, a large and loose group and loose term, a loose, loose term, but Protestants gave less money in the year 2000 than during the Great Depression, okay? So what, what, what does that show? There's not a correlation to getting more money and it bringing satisfaction, okay? What is the correlation? It is something spiritual. Uh, an early Christian named Boethius said this in a poem. He said, if plenty should pour from cornucopia full, as much in riches as the sand stirred up by the wind-whipped seas, or as the countless stars that shine in the clear night sky and never stay her hand, still man would complain of poverty. Boethius was seeing that this was just part of the human condition, an always lusting, never satisfied heart that is discontent. Number eight, we are not to let anxiety, worry, stress take residence within us. And of course, on another day, that would be a whole sermon in itself, but I'm just going quickly now. Number nine, we are not to let self-pity live within our hearts. And then number 10, one, one that I'll spend a little bit more time on, we are not to give in, not to give in to despair. And then the more modern word for it, depression. Now, I want you to hear what I say and what I don't say, because there, there could be some misunderstanding here. The Bible's perspective is contrary to the thinking of the world at 500 turns. And this is another one of those places. This is another one of those places where the Bible's perspective, it is different than the impression that is often given by the world. And so we may find some ways here that, that this... Um, contradicts even with some things that may be believed right now. So hear what I say and what I don't say. Charles Spurgeon, John Bunyan, the missionary David Brainerd, the hymn writer William Cooper, King David, the prophet Jeremiah, and literally millions of other Christians have all battled despair or depression at some point in their life. Some of them for a brief season, others very severely for, a, for the duration of their life. Like Spurgeon, by the way, who at times couldn't bring himself to get out of bed in the morning. And in the Bible, there is, there is a, a, a multitude of things that the Bible would say. And a few of them would be, number one, you know, there's grace Great men and women of God have battled with despair, have wrestled with some kind of darkness that would creep into their souls. They wrestled with these things and there's grace. You know, scripture says that uh, part of the exhortation that we are to have as a church family towards one another, we are to encourage the faint hearted, help the weak and be patient with, with everyone, be patient with all. But there's another part of the message here, and this would be the part that would maybe most ruffle feathers and go against the grain of the thinking of culture. And that is this, a key word in what I just said, when I talk about these great men and women of God who battled despair and darkness, it is that word battled. In other words, they did not just give in to it. They did not just lay down in the darkness. 
They did not just adopt it as their identity. They did not just say, there's nothing that I can do about it. Instead, they wrestled with the darkness. They battled and fought in order to bring their hearts to a place where they had hope and peace and gratitude and, and joy. And so, you know, th- th- this, this is where the truth of scripture and the perspective of the word of God, it runs contrary to the world. Because you, you know, especially in our culture right now, that there's this victim mentality that has become so popular. And it oftentimes gives the impression to folks who battle various kinds of darkness, this idea that there's nothing that can be done. There's nothing that can be done. So you just, you just live with it as, as a part of you and adopt it as part of the identity. And instead, what the Bible shows is that, is that this is something that is to be battled. This is something that is to be wrestled with. It's not like a light switch of just uh, oh, get yourself in a good mood. No, but this is something that is to be marched forward in. You know, if you are one um, who occasionally or in a, in a long-term kind of way wrestles with darkness creeping into your soul, you know, the, the Bible would have a lot to say. This is, this is just a very quick thing. But here, Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, Jesus gives the invitation to come to him, and you will receive care. But we also need to know that the care that Jesus will give is, is not only sympathy. There will be grace and sympathy and comfort that is given, but there is more. Jesus is going to work to sanctify. He is going to work to to lead you into days of joy and hope and gratitude. And we can kind of see some of these sorts of things is like a lot of the virtues. It's like a muscle. It's like a muscle. The more that we give in to darkness, the stronger the darkness will be. And the more that we press on to joy, even if on a certain day, it's, it's just a little thing, but the more that we press on to take heart, to take hope, to take a, a glimmer of joy, that muscle will build over time. And Jesus wants to lead us into peace, contentment, and hope, and, and joy. And so, you know, if you experience depression, despair, darkness of various kinds, you need to know that the Bible's perspective is not what's wrong with you, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, okay? It's not a perspective of if you just prayed more, this would go away. That's, that's not the, okay. You can always tell when some, a Christian has never battled despair because they say that kind of thing to somebody else, okay? If you just would read your Bible more, this would just go away. Didn't work for Spurgeon, okay? Like this, this, is, this is something that people wrestle with. But we also must know it's not okay to just lay down in it. It's not okay to lay down in the slough of despond. Now that, 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 phrase I just used there. That comes from Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, one of the guys that I mentioned who wrestled with despair and depression, uh, wrote one of the most helpful books you'll ever read in your entire Christian life. I've recommended it many times to you, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a fictional allegory in which a, a character named Christian journeys towards the city of heaven. And along the way, he encounters all kinds of trials, the kinds of trials that Christians endure. And one of, one of the trials 
that Bunyan made sure to write into his story was Christian on the road journeying in obedience to Christ. He fell into the, a, a bog, a miry, mucky swamp where he got stuck. The slew of despond, despondency, despair. And he, he got stuck in this. But when Bunyan wrote the story, he wrote it so that Christian did come out of the slough. In the story, he, part of the way he came out is God sent a Christian by the name of help to help him out. And this is meant to teach some things there. But part of the point is we must tell ourselves, we must preach to ourselves. It's not okay to just lay down in the slough of despond. We must press on to hope and joy. This is a cursed world. In a cursed world, we're born in Adam. We have inherited a sin nature from Adam. And it means a lot of things. We're affected in every part of us. We are affected physically. We are affected spiritually, mentally, emotionally, etc. And there's a variety of different ways that, that we will wrestle with temptations and, 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 and various kinds of tests and such. But this is one of those that, that we can from time to time battle with. And so the encouragement that we, we must say to ourselves is, I must not lay down in this, but rather press on into joy. So those were, those were 10 quick things that we are to battle against. Now here's a list of the positive commands. So those were attitudes we are not to hold in our hearts. Here are things that we are to do. I'll list off eight, and you know this is an exhaustive, but let me mention eight. The eighth one will be rejoice. So that's what we're building towards, but oftentimes virtues have companion virtues. So here are virtues that go along with the call to rejoice. Number one, we are to give thanks in all circumstances. We are to have a heart filled with gratitude. Ephesians 5.20 says this, we are to be always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now, there's a couple of verses. So the one from 1 Thessalonians 5 that I mentioned, give thanks in every circumstance. Ephesians 5, giving thanks for all things. That's not a typo. It's not just some generic kind of thing. Okay, this is Betsy seeing that even the fleas were ordained by God. This is a perspective that sees everything that comes in my life has been ordained by God and it is for my good. And so we are to give thanks in the circumstances and giving thanks for what God is doing in the circumstances. You know, in order to rejoice, there's a change of perspective that we need. It's not a change of perspective where the Bible is trying to get us to believe something that isn't true. Like, it's not like the Bible comes to us and says, rejoice. And we say, but Lord, I'm in a concentration camp. And it's not like God says, well, just pretend that you're not. That's not the scenario. The Bible calls us to rejoice and then shows us Here's the reality of where you really are. And what needs to come is this, this transformation of perspective. Because Christian, here is the reality of where we really are. The riches of the inheritance to come, it's just around the corner. It will not be long. 
and you will be singing with the angels in the host of, of the, the angels in the host of heaven. It will not be long and your feet will be there. You will blink and you will be old. You blink and this life will pass. You are almost in that kingdom. I mean, you can, you, can, you can almost hear the sounds that are there. And that's part of what the Bible is doing. It's causing us to think on those things, to imagine the kingdom of heaven, to meditate on the, the glory that is to come. You are in a situation that is glorious. You are Christian. You have been saved from the wrath of God. Tonight, when you lay in bed, would you please spend five minutes meditating, thinking on what hell is, the wrath of God that is there, and then rejoice, you have been delivered out of that. And then maybe in the next five or 10 hours after that, meditate on the kingdom of heaven and the glory of what is to come. Christian, this is your situation. You are in a glory situation. And I know that you may say, but pastor, I was just diagnosed with cancer. My loved one just died. You are in a glorious situation. The inheritance is just around the corner. There's just a little bit more of a test. Keep trucking, keep pressing. You're almost there, press on. This is our situation. But the problem is we don't see it that way. The problem is we, we, we so often see with the eyes of the flesh instead of by faith. And the eyes of the flesh focus on all of the foot pains we have while we're traveling to the celestial city. We, we, we worry about the thorn in our leg on the road to glory. And what needs to come is a change of perspective. The sin nature is an always unsatisfied, lusting, never content, entitled, jealous, coveting ball of envy. This is what is rolling inside of our hearts. And we are to put those things to death. We are to put those things to death in order to look to the hope that we have. And so there is a way that we are to regularly train ourselves. Stop focusing on the difficulties and fix your eyes on Christ. That's language from the book of Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This and the hope that we have in him being what we think on. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of this earth for your citizenship is in heaven. Consistently, the Bible is preaching, look to what is to come and not focusing on the pain of now. We are in a glorious state, awaiting an inheritance, but we need a change of perspective. So how do we change that perspective? Well, that's a big answer, okay? Like there would be a whole sermon in that itself. You know that a great deal of that would be every time that we come to worship, okay? Every time that you participate in worship, you are setting your mind on things above. We are choosing to think on the things that give us hope and encouragement. And the more we do this, and so uh, there's a reason why we are taught in scripture to worship morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, when you rise and before you go to bed, morning and evening, and then pray without ceasing throughout the day. We are thinking on the truths of God every day, be taking in the word. That's its own sermon. But here for this point, give thanks. Give thanks. And we will find that when we carve out time to pray and we make sure that we include as part of our lifting up of request with thanksgiving, 
we are giving thanks, we will find our heart shifting its perspective. See, the giving of thanks, here, if, if we're honest, it's one of those places in the Bible, I catch myself doing this as well, you're reading in the Bible and you come across give thanks in all things and we kind of say, yeah, yeah, got that covered. And we think that because we know we should. We think that because we know the verse. We think we got it covered because it seems so simple. And we got to remind ourselves, something's not covered until it's covered. <laughs> something's not covered until we do it. We say this with prayer a lot, okay? We read a passage in the Bible, like is coming up very soon in Romans 12, be devoted to prayer. We're like, yeah, yeah, got it covered. It's not covered until we carve out time, come away from the world and go to meet with our Lord. And the same with giving of thanks. Carve out the time regularly, put it in your prayer list, mention 30 things to give thanks for, we will find our perspective changing. A heart that is not just doing an act of giving gratitude, but a heart that has an attitude of gratitude will begin to develop in our souls. But let me also make sure I say, that's not the primary reason why we ought to give thanks to God. It will change our perspective, but that's not the number one reason to do it. The number one reason to do it is because God is worthy of it. And this is cosmically right to give glory to God. This is the great end and purpose of all things. He deserves glory. We give him thanks and that's the first reason, but it just so happens that God has made these things to also transform and benefit us. So that's the first. Number two, we are to hope in the Lord. Hope is the opposite of despair. To take hope means to bring our hearts to believe and really believe promises of God such that it produces a glad confidence, a glad confidence within us. We are told in scripture to fix our hope completely on the grace to be given us. I often tell you to pay attention to the prayers in the Bible. When Paul would pray for the churches in the New Testament, you see this included all the time. I pray that you will know that you will see the glory of the riches of your inheritance. Why did he so badly want them to have this? Because when, it, when the light bulb comes on and it hits us, I do have a, an inheritance that is amazing. It brings this change of perspective and it causes hope to rise. Number three, we are to be content. Contentment is when we have satisfied peace about what we have. We are to be content in our circumstances. We are to be content with our possessions. We are to be content in the amount of money God has ordained. We are to be content sexually. We are to be content in regard to marriage and children. Coveting, lusting, envying are all dissolved by the peaceful rest of contentment. Number four, we are to take delight at pleasant even earthly circumstances when God sends them. Now, the bigger point of this message is that Paul, um, so here, here's one of the big sermons from the Bible. Paul wrote the book of Philippians from a prison cell with wounds across his back. He had just got the tar beat out of him. And the main idea of the book of Philippians is rejoice in the Lord always because the hope we have is just unfathomable. So that's the bigger point of this message. But we also need to know if God sends you some earthly temporal blessing. Yes, it's not the kind that'll last for 10,000 years, but it's still a temporal blessing. Take delight in those things. 
It's a good thing to take delight. And we'll find that when we have a heart that's just always a grumbling and complaining heart, we have trouble appreciating simple gifts of God. A heart that is always unsatisfied and never content. There, there can be really good things that happen. And you know that guy or that girl that just can never be happy, can never be pleased? That's an unpleasant perspective. That's an unpleasant place to be. And so it is a good thing to be able to, be able to appreciate gifts of God and to say, ha, thank you, God. You didn't have to do this. Thank you. We've got a brand new building coming and all these resources. Thank you, God. It's good to sing and to dance at, at, at good gifts of God. Number five, take peace. We are to live with peace in our hearts. The opposite of anxiety, stress, fretting, worrying is to be at peace. Jesus asleep in the boat is, is just the, the, probably the most beautiful picture we have of this. The storm was raging. The boat was being assaulted. There's Jesus, probably a smile on his face, peaced out, not worried, okay? Why was he not worried? Well, the disciples woke him up and said, don't you care about us? So their conclusion was he's not worried because he doesn't care. That's not it. He wasn't worried because Jesus knew my father's got this. Rest and at peace with this. I always remember Psalm 2. The kings of the earth amass their armies against the, the one true God and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. And we are invited to laugh with him. We, God is a God who is at peace. He's not fretting. He's not worrying. And he extends that invitation to us. Number six, we are to worship. There is a way to worship in every circumstance, a way to exalt God as worthy in every circumstance. Uh, the book of James says, if some good, happy thing has happened to you, we'll sing in delight. If, if some distressing thing has come, we'll then go to the Lord and lift up your request. But there is a way to worship, a way to draw near to God in every circumstance. Number seven, we are to heal from heartache, loss, and trauma. If you have experienced heartache, loss, some kind of trauma, you need to know that the Bible shows that grieving is a good and godly thing. It is a good and godly thing. Never forget, Jesus wept. Jesus wept, and there, there's a lot that is preached by that. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. Um, don't ever let anybody shame you into thinking that if you, if you are grieved over something that you don't have enough faith. Like if I, if I totally trusted, I wouldn't be sad. Grief is a good and godly thing. We're shown this in scripture. Jesus wept. But, but there is another part to this. Okay. There's another part to this. We are shown in scripture that God wants us to take comfort, be strengthened, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Hebrews says we are to take hope. We are to heal from it. It does happen sometimes that people get stuck in grief and even feel guilty for, for trying to come out of grief. It, it sometimes comes that when someone loses a loved one, they, they think that if I ever get happy, it'd be like I was betraying my loved one. That's not the way that it is. And you, you need to tell yourself that that's not the way that this is. God wants you to heal and to come to strength and hope and joy again. And then number eight, the last one here, rejoice. Rejoice. We got to be careful with the definitions of words. We live and die by words, so we got to get them right. Joy is a kind of delight. It is a kind of felicity within our souls, but it is something that is deeper 
than happiness. Happiness isn't a bad word, okay? But happiness just isn't enough for what the word joy is. Uh, happy, you may think of, I think of happy along the lines of the word fun. Fun's not a bad word, but fun is shallow. There are things that are deeper and richer and fuller than fun. Some things can be fulfilling. That's deeper than fun. And similar with joy. Happiness isn't a bad word, but joy is something that is deeper. It is a kind of delight in our souls, a kind of well-being in our souls. And the Bible shows that we can have this regardless of the circumstances. So we can have joy on the day of your wedding and the day that your babies are born, but Paul was able to rejoice in a prison cell. Don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean that joy is like when you're really miserable. No, joy is a kind of cheer in the heart. It is a kind of delight, a kind of felicity that can be present even in the midst of pain. And here is one of the most important statements of this entire sermon. And one of the whole reasons why I wanted to take a full Sunday to look at this. We must train ourselves to rejoice. That's, that's actually kind of a significant statement. We must train ourselves. It takes effort. It takes work because we've got this sinful flesh. We've got this sinful flesh that wants to do all the things we talked about in that list of 10 things. We've got this sinful flesh that sometimes gets grumpy and I just want to stay that way. Gets bitter at somebody and I just want to stay there. I, I want to be angry. I don't want to forgive. The sinful flesh loves to be miserable, okay? Like, isn't that one of the amazing things uh, about the word of God? It's so different than the way the world sees God. God says, I want you to be joyful. How oppressive. (laughs) I want you to be joyful. I want you to take heart. I don't want you to live in this unpleasant bitterness. I want you to have joy. But the hard part is the flesh wants some of these things that really are unpleasant. But we have to train ourselves to rejoice It takes active, deliberate, intentional work to rejoice. Somebody gives you a million dollars, that's not hard to be happy. But but to rejoice on difficult days, to rejoice before coffee, okay? To rejoice on some of these these, these sorts of days, these difficult kinds of things. This, this, it, it does take effort to bring myself to be like, okay, it's not okay that I'm in this kind of mood. Lord, help me. And then we begin to think of our perspective. I think that's some of the genius behind the model prayer that Jesus taught us. In the model prayer that Jesus taught us, there are uh, at least seven thoughts that we ought to think every single day. This comes from my mentor. He wrote a book on it, okay? And the first thought of that is, our Father who is in heaven. Every single day we reflect on the fact, the God who is in heaven, he's my Father. And he has purchased my redemption. And he's in heaven. And there I will be also. And every day we reflect on the hope that we have. If every morning we would take the discipline, if we just picked like one thought every day, I'm going to think this one thought every morning, it would have an effect of training us to rejoice. Joy is like a muscle, like all the rest of the virtues. We practice it, it gets stronger. But unfortunately, the, the vices, the, the, the uh, fleshly attitudes, they're like monsters. And the more we feed them, the bigger they get. You feed the darkness, the darkness gets bigger. Train ourselves to rejoice and joy will get bigger. For those of you who are in Christ, you are in a glorious state because you are awaiting an inheritance and it's just around the corner. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Never forget this, Christian. Our God is the happiest being in all of the cosmos. 
He is not fretful. He is not miserable. He is not a God of, 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 of like, like constant anger. He is the most joyful being of the cosmos. And he invites us into his rest, his peace, and his joy. That is our strength. And our message to you, if you have never turned to Christ, we, we, we give the invitation that the book of Psalms does over and over again. Come and delight yourselves in the Lord with us. Come and have the gladness of this inheritance. Come and have the joy, not that's automatic, but a joy that is available to you. Come have the kingdom of heaven. Come and be made right with your maker, the God that you will stand before, the judge of the living and the dead. Come and have forgiveness of sins, but you will only get this by turning to Christ and trusting in him. I know that everywhere you go, the world makes you think that everybody's okay just because that's not what God says. You must be saved from the, the, the fate that you deserve, from the end that you deserve because of your sins. But we deserved it as well. But God will save you by grace, not because anybody deserves it, but by grace, he will save you if you will turn to Christ in your heart. Turn away from rebellion and from an attitude that says, I'm going to do what I want. And turn with an attitude that him in submission, that trust in him and pray and ask him to save you. Tell him that you believe and that you want to be saved. And the Bible says, if you will look to him like that, you will be saved. If, if, if you would like to do that, if you'd like somebody to talk to, find you before you leave. And let me have a conversation with you and show you more from the scriptures. Let me close this in prayer now. Our God in heaven, we love you and we thank you. We are grateful for the hope that we have. There is no way we will ever be, ever be able to express the gratitude, the worship, the glory that you deserve. But I pray, oh God, that we will use the rest of our lives to demonstrate our gratitude. Help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice. You've given us this exhortation. Help us to do it. Remind us of it. Especially remind us, O oh Lord, in some of those moments where we are being tempted with ungodly attitudes. Bring us to rejoice and to do so in hope. I ask, O oh God, for you to give us your blessing as we dismiss. Please bless our fellowship afterwards. We ask all these things uh, through the name of Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.